here in our remote bunkers, wherever that is, for episode 135 of Blockchain Insider, the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Cash is King once more, the Bank of England releases their central bank digital currency white paper, and MakerDAO faces an emergency shutdown. I guess they're not the only ones. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I have some amazing guests joining us remotely today. First up, we have the returning Vinay Gupta, founder and CEO of Materium. Vinay, how are you doing, sir? Good to see you. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Good, good. Looks sunny where you are. I'm uh, very, very jealous you got some sunshine. Uh, yeah, not from long. The sun's going down. It is, it is. Um, That's not a metaphor. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by a returning guest, uh, the wonderful uh, Obi and uh, sorry, Obi, I never know how to say your last name. Uh, please do it for me. Rosu. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I, I so butchered that. Do you know I've butchered so many names? I hope I'm in good company. <laughs> <laughs> Obi, thank you so much for being on the show. CEO of CoinFloor. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you back, so it's, it's good to hear and, and, and see you once more. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? The first story this week, we, we picked up from Coindesk, um, but it could have literally been anywhere. Um, you might have noticed that as a result of a certain virus going around, um, the uh, it looks like cash is the new safe haven as crypto and gold have continued to tank. The market's volatility is all over the place. Um, but Obi, I thought that crypto was the safe haven asset. Uh, I thought that crypto was the thing that you wanted in the apocalypse. What, what's going on here? Well, um, first of all, uh, you know, um, as of December last year, we went Bitcoin only because we believed only Bitcoin is is a store of value. That's its actual purpose. It's designed for these scenarios. And um, Bitcoin and Things like gold will show over the coming year or so that they are actual stores of value. But what's going on is this. Um, a number of very large institutional traders, um, and we've seen it, we, we see them doing it, are taking risk out. They're, they're, they're risking off. What that means is that they, are, they have positions in the traditional markets larger, much, much larger positions than the sort of the play money almost that they have in the crypto markets. Those positions uh, may be long, i.e. they're betting that the price is going up and they're leveraged. If the price goes down and they get they get liquidated, they, lose, they stand to lose a lot of money. So it makes sense for them to add a little bit of money to their positions to make sure they don't get liquidated. Now, that means they have to get money from other sources, and they're going to start with the most liquid sources first, which is why they take money out from Bitcoin because it's highly liquid or other um, cryptocurrencies that they're investing in. And they also take it out from gold. We also saw gold go down as well. Um, they've, uh, there's been attempts we've seen where people have asked to try and take money out from equities as well, but it's just harder. You can't just sell your shares so easily. But it's rather do that than lose a position. You, you, you're making a really good point there, Obi, which is uh, your Bitcoin is traded 24-7. If I want to sell the thing, I can I can sell it Im immediately. It's, exactly. it's not an issue. But I can't sell a shopping mall um, that quickly and, and, and real estate. But actually, these, really, these hedge funds and, and other investors that are in that position, they have to sell the thing that they can sell. And we've saw similar things in previous financial crises where initially gold goes down, but over 12 to 24 months, gold actually starts to recover. So are you saying that we might see a similar pattern uh, for things like Bitcoin? It's following the pattern exactly. So 
Um, you've got long-term speculators, people who are betting in the fundamental um, delivery of the offering of or the purpose of Bitcoin as a store of value. And you've got short-term speculators who are speculating in Bitcoin, Ethereum. They don't really, many of them don't really care the asset. Those That short-term money is leaving the market right now, but it's leaving sort of, you know, bargain basement prices for, for the long-term investors. And so you're going to see this return back. Absolutely. When this story was published, Bitcoin was down about 20%. ETH was down about 30%. And we've seen uh, similar drops and more. Um, we saw, of course, in the, the public markets, we've seen 10% drops and you know, some all-time great daily losses on the stock market, followed by you know half half bounce backs. I mean, this this is not unheard of. Yeah, but and that's a good, good point, though. We're talking about markets which are orders of magnitude bigger than the Bitcoin market. A drop of 20 or 30% in the Bitcoin market is actually very good compared to a drop of 10% with circuit breakers in the traditional markets, which are far bigger. It's, it's like the analogy of a, a tanker on the, on the rough waves versus a dinghy. Of course, yeah. the dinghy is going to move around much more on the same, on the same vital environment. So 20 or 30% drop in an un unregulated market with no circuit breakers is actually very good and very bullish from from many people's point of view compared to the disaster that's happening in the, in the traditional markets. It's an interesting experiment in in Bitcoin being the free market. You know, it's kind of with almost no controls around it. You see what happens when you take those circuit breakers out, almost. Although some exchanges do do have them. Uh, Vinay, I want to throw to you. I mean, um, we Bitcoin has had an association with um, libertarians, anarchists, uh, cypherpunks for quite some time. It's also had an association with uh, the world of prepping and prep. You know, in the in that world, um, is there something where uh, these folks are selling their Bitcoin to start uh, hoard things? Is is there any of that going on, or actually, uh, it, it, are those folks staying true to Bitcoin in in your mind? It's hard to say because people tend to be very reluctant to discuss what they're actually doing. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of secrecy that goes with the American mm -hmm. prepper mindset because of the assumption that if your neighbors know you're a prepper, they're going to raid you as soon as the shit hits the fan. Um, but, uh, I mean, my suspicion is that people are just liquidating, uh, assets like Bitcoin and gold to buy guns and ammunition and tuna. <laughs> Keep it simple. Oh, I thought it was baked beans and custard, uh, Vinny. No, that's, that's England. In America, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, one cubic meter of tuna and 10,000 rounds. That's the kind of standard. That's, yeah, that's your minimum, minimum prepper equipment. Yeah. That's the one, is it? It's a what do you think about the um, in, in a world of working from home and decentralization? Do you think uh, the prognosis for things like Bitcoin, things like Ethereum, is broadly good or bad? Do you think that the momentum behind a decentralized community is broadly good or bad in, in this environment? Does it just become a distraction and people go back to their real jobs, or or is this their actual real job? Well, okay, so I mean, here the question is really fundamentally: Does the federal government survive? Right. Um, America has basically gone through most of the stages of state failure that you would have seen in the collapse of the former Soviet Union. Like the point where life expectancy begins to come down, the fact that you get a completely uncontrolled opiate epidemic that wipes out enormous numbers of people, the collapsing faith in institutions. You know, even at the height of the collapse in Moscow, caviar was still caviar, right? The place where you really saw the collapse was the sort of Soviet equivalent of Kentucky. So, you know, America's in a position where it's got, you know, enormous amounts of fragility in the healthcare system, 
enormous amounts of fragility in the financial system. Let's note the Dow closed for the second time in history, right? Um, and that's not that's not a weak signal. The Dow closes for the second time in history. That's a strong signal. The entire market dropped by what seven percent before they pulled the ripcord. Um, so nearly which, ten, yeah, nearly ten, which makes the volatility in Bitcoin and Ether look like a rounding error, right? You can't even perceive it in a ten percent Dow drop. Uh, the American government are talking about helicoptering basic income into the pockets of Americans right now. They're talking about doing this within the next two weeks. Um, the current talk is it'll be about $1,000 per American if they go through with it. Uh, I just want to put a feather in my own cap here in that I built out all of those models uh, when I was at DoD more than 10 years ago. Now, I don't know whether they're basing it on that work or not, but I was certainly there and I was in the room where that stuff you know, was first surfaced. So if we get large-scale fragmentation in the states as this thing rips. Um, that's the point where you kind of see the Bitcoin $100,000 thing becomes realistic. And that's not necessarily happening because Bitcoin is worth a lot more. It's kind of happening because the dollar is worth one hell of a lot less. This was always the um, understanding around the value increase in Bitcoin. It's not that Bitcoin's value is going up. It's not a deflationary asset in that sense. It's an anti-inflationary asset. It's trying to hold its value, but inflationary currencies by their nature, in a very public way, um, lose value over time. Now, with the um, government, the US government, adding 1.5 trillion to, to their balance sheet, um, the, the inflation rates Maybe it will be delayed, but it's, it, you'll, it will go from this small amount that's hard for people to understand, 2% a year, to potentially a significantly higher amount. People will start to realize that. And even more, one of the biggest experiments, we have never seen it before. Only central banks had the superpower of being able to print money out of thin air. Um, they gave a limited amount of that power to normal retail banks with fractional reserve banking. They have now, Sunday night, um, they crept out the idea that um, for the first time in history, not even the Great Depression did they give this power, zero um, um, zero reserve banking. I, you, you could have a full run in the bank, have no money in the bank, and they will still be able to print money. And that's never been experimented before. But everything's fine, right? There's no cause for concern? I'm, I'm sure. So. Uh, well, this will, this will be an incredible effect on inflation. Um, and we need to, and so you need a mechanism that anybody can access anywhere in the world to protect yourself from inflation. There are many things that are important in the world, but protecting your value that you've generated in the world from going to zero very quickly is one is very high up there. So what's what's interesting is the bigger worry for the central banks, I suspect, is actually deflation, um, is that prices start going down and that why would I spend now when it would be cheaper in three months' time? And uh, they, they have a target to keep inflation around 2%. And if economic activity stops, to a large degree, people stop buying things. Things that had value suddenly have less value. Things that were going to be bought now suddenly get bought in three months' time. And the only way to stimulate that back up is to print money, which in certain sort of deflates. And so they end up in this deflationary cycle. And the only tools they've got um, from a policy perspective historically to deal with that are printing money or reducing interest rates, but they've sort of hit floor, uh, which will link to our to our next story. So let's bring that in, but keep the discussion going because this actually uh, is the Bank of England releasing their white paper on central bank digital currencies. Um, 
said it's not a blueprint for central bank digital currencies, but it identifies a bunch of benefits that could help uh, prevent the risks of new forms of private money creations, brackets, Libra. They don't say that, but but they also talk about how a denominated pound sterling would work alongside rather than replace cash and bank deposits. And they asked some searching questions about uh, if they did have a central bank sterling, would you or I want to hold it? Should it pay interest? Would businesses want to hold it? Should it pay interest from the central bank? And if it did, does it compete with commercial banks? And and how do they mitigate that? And one of the benefits they point out is if you could get rid of paper money, but you had something that had all of the anonymity or as near as much anonymity as cash, would you in fact create something that allowed you to take money out of circulation and go into negative interest rates from a policy objective stamp? So it's interesting that this potentially is seen as a, uh, a way in which you could get into negative interest rates territory because you could actually take money out of supply. So it, it's interesting to, to watch these things play. How, how do you think about the, the central bank's reactions to that? Uh, Vinay, I'll let you start on this. All right. So the way that I see this is this, right? So remember that I was a pandemic flu guy, You know, did a bunch of this planning work. Uh, so I have a particularly apocalyptic take on this because the di- <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I mean, the diseases that I worked on were roughly ten times as fatal as COVID is, right? Yeah. So this is like, you know, you know, through the first phases of this thing, I was kind of, like, eh, you know, mm, yeah, it'll be fine, and then gradually the data mounted, and it's like, okay, no, we have to do something about this. So the question is, is this a short event or is this a long event, right? The Chinese get the thing recontained in three months, but the problem is that the Chinese population are still vulnerable. So either they're going to have to continue to maintain quarantine indefinitely, or they risk that it's going to make a jump as soon as they loosen the quarantine. And then it also might be vastly more effective in winter. So if you assume two years of large-scale quarantine and ongoing disruption, before we get effective vaccines rolled out to the point where the population is no longer broadly vulnerable, um, you can imagine that the central banks might want to move to direct drive, right? Central bank digital currency, the option of negative interest rates anytime they want it, automated tax enforcement, and you basically just de-bureaucratize huge parts of the system because what you're doing is you're building a war economy. And in a war economy, you move much more towards a planned economy model. And if anything glitches, you basically just print money and stuff it into that particular hole until the thing de-glitches. And I think on that, Vinny, the war economy thing is not as unrealistic as it sounds. I mean, we've already seen examples of JCB thinking about how can they start printing uh, ICU stuff and use their engineering capabilities. We're already seeing... Um, food delivery companies like Deliveroo and Uber Eats thinking about how can they scale up their operations and support the vulnerable. I heard Amazon just hired 100,000 employees in a single sweep in America. We we are in wartime territory, yeah. They're, they're looking to hire, yeah. So but this, I mean, this, this was a tweet, but I decided not to do it because I didn't think it was appropriate at the time. But last week, I, I was going to tweet, we are in World War Three. Um, everything that's happening fits that. But the expectation at the time, it could have been an alien invasion, an AI apocalypse. It turns out to be a tiny alien-looking like creature which can infect its host and, and cause wreak havoc far beyond the actual infection. But um, I don't think it's a surprise. And this is exactly what Bitcoin was designed to deal with. You're going to, it makes sense, the idea of a central bank digital currency, 
in a world where there is no such thing as Bitcoin. But if there is such a thing as Bitcoin, people will not be comfortable with the idea of their value being re removed slowly by demurrage um, every day, a little, a small percentage being removed. I would want to keep my value in a currency that's out with that system so it holds its value. And I'll be able to now know mathematically how much I'm saving by doing that. Why would I, why would I um, go along with the, um, it doesn't, it's not in my self-interest. Why would I follow that? No, it's an interesting question, Obi. I think that, but isn't that something that's a luxury of the people with money to be able to think about it? If, if you're not getting paid in that currency, it's always been the case that investors have been able to hedge against macro risk. I mean, rich people in the 30s, you know, did quite well in portfolios that were uh, hedged against uh, kind of uh, the, the macro risks. Uh, if you are in gold, if you're in all of those sorts of things over the long horizon, you're kind of in a good place. If you pull out in cash, you know, there's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. Warren Buffett has been, you know, 90% cash since 2016. Um, Ray Dalio has been all cash since 2017. You know, their hedge funds have been absolutely crushed for missing out on one of the greatest bull market runs. And so now they're in a position where they are hedged and they can they can do different things. You know, if I had piles of cash that size, I'd be waiting for the commercial real estate collapse. And then I would just go back in and buy like entire square miles of cities, you know, because this is a temporary condition. And on the other side of that, you know, everything will probably pop back to right about where it was. And those guys, if they buy back in at the bottom, are going to come out with enormous, enormous gains. So I actually, this is where, it might be controversial, but this is where I disagree. I don't think this is a temporary condition. I just released a, 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 an article just an hour ago discussing the coming contain. We need a containment strategy for the fallout, for the financial fallout that comes with this, not just for what's happening now. And the, the problem is this, and it seems like a small thing, but it's always big change for capitalism, a small thing. You mentioned it earlier, remote working. Now, if you think about it, um, we incur a huge number of risks and costs because we decide that we have to congregate in spaces to work. So we have incredibly expensive real estate based in central in cities. We have to live close to work or places that have oh, good communication links to that. And then we, and then, you know, I used to work in travel for a number of years uh, for a very large international um, travel company. 90, 80 to 90% of all travel is for business purposes. So you now have this enforced um, process where people have to work from home. And 20 years ago, it probably wasn't possible. 10 almost certainly. But now what we will realize very quickly is that for a number of knowledge workers, a big percentage and the most affluent percentage of the community it is actually possible to work from home and not be uh, and still to be very productive. After this is over, because it's going to be, I, I was expecting six to nine months, but I I, I will bow to Vinay's um, great experience and suggest it's 12 to um, um, 24 months. But by the time that's over, some percentage, let's just say 5% of businesses will come to the conclusion that they don't need to go back to the office. Now, let's say even if it's only 5%, you you are now, um, if you think about it, people process product. If you're someone looking to work for a company and one company saying you can be anywhere in the world and work for us, it's not a problem with us. And the other one says you have to be in his office, you're going to get the best talent. So you're going to win because you've got the best talent. You're going to have much lower costs in terms of shuttling your staff around. Your staff will have far higher, lower levels of health risk issues because they most health issues happen on 
coming to or from work or working in the work, flu, cold, etc. less time off. So you're just going to win. You're going to have happier customers, less str- happier employees, less stressed, lower costs. You're not going to have overheads of, of real estate as well. So you are therefore going to either gain market share against your competitors, all things being equal, or your competitors are going to have to follow you. It only requires 5%. And that's a meme it will grow across the community. And at that point, think about the effect on real estate. It's a permanent effect. Think about the effect on transportation, um, air travel, car travel, so on. As I said, 80 to 90% relates to going to and from work. So this is a permanent effect. And we've just been waiting for this process. And at that stage, at that stage, things will change forever. I think that's interesting, Obi, but I wonder if there's a couple of other things going on as well. So even if we saw a 5% drop overall in all travel activity, all services sector activity, all of this kind of stuff, what's the equal and opposite reaction to that in elsewhere in the economy? So net-net growth ends up somewhere not dissimilar. Um, do you remove the human condition and desire to be around other people? Actually, I think you'd have a pent-up loss of celebration to, to, to want to do that. So you might actually see... Um, no. And inversing and and then don't forget that populations are still growing at a historic rates you know the, the birth rate is still greater than the death rate so there's a lot of macro things that might that might counter that but i think your points are well made you know i take them overall the the thing that if that we need to think about is you know, financial markets, financial institutions, banks are going to start looking very distressed in three to six months' time as loans start running out, as the governments are pushing them to stand behind small businesses. They start to look a lot more insolvent and the repo markets are frozen. The Fed is holding up the repo markets. Like, What happens next and what's the, what's the thing that people can run to? So Simon, this is why I say war economy, right? E- even you know what we've got is a systemic crisis, and the the most the systemic crises we're most familiar with are financial collapses, wars, and epidemics. We don't have a clear separation between World War One and the World War One era pandemic flu, uh, the, Sp- Spanish the flu. Spanish flu, right? The, I think H one N one. You know, because they were so close in on each other, it's hard to separate out the effects. But when you've got this kind of systemic crisis, really the only entity that has big enough grip to do anything about the operating conditions is the government. You know, like if you know if you go outside and it's twenty below freezing, you know everything will slow up, everything slows down. There's nothing that can be done. What we have is the financial equivalent of winter, and the government has the ability to turn the sun on. The question is, when they can they turn it back on without accidentally scorching their currencies? And you know that hyperinflation, deflation thing. You know, I, I keep what, what's in my mind here is like quantitative easing, right? When I looked at QE going in around what two thousand and eight, nine, ten, eleven, that sort of window, I expected hyperinflation the next morning. Like they just printed a quadrillion dollars, injected into the financial system, and then there was no hyperinflation. Because I think what happened was you had enormous amounts of imaginary debt that were essentially met by enormous amounts of imaginary money, kind of cancelled to nothing, right? Because so much of it was weird derivatives that generated enormous liabilities, but there was no change in the underlying. They basically just bribed the imaginary debt out of existence and then kind of went back to business as usual. This time, I think that we're looking at substantial changes in the underlying structure of the economy, right? Certainly, consumption is going way down. On the other hand, I think we're also in a position where we might notice, and I'm, I'm, 
I'm not going to get this right on the first try, but let me fumble through it and then see whether I can get it right on the second one. So I think we've had like 30 years of pent-up social change waiting to be triggered by the internet, right? This is your point about once people work from home, they might never come back to the office. I think that might be quite multidimensional. And there's a kind of hidebound rigidity in our societies that's super deeply dug in. You really see this in Britain. In America, there's a bit more of an attitude of like, well, if you're doing it, you're making money and you're not disturbing anybody, keep right on going. Like if you could open a bar out of your garage in America, you could probably run that thing for a couple of years before somebody comes around and says you're not supposed to do that. And even then, they're going to give you a slap on the wrist, whereas here they're really going to crucify you. So I wonder what comes out of this won't be much more willingness to say anything that works is okay with us and a kind of retraction of the bureaucracy more towards an American model, right? right? Are we going to, are we going to loosen up as a result of this, which could then result in a lot more economic growth because when people are working at home for a, six months or something, three months, however long it's going to be, I think there's going to be an enormous amount of innovation. So we've seen a number of models emerge, haven't we? We've seen China, which in single party state right. and actually not just bureaucracy, but bang, just make things happen. Um, almost to its detriment now, but but sort of you know it kind of goes so far towards the um, the the anti privacy side of it, and and there are concerns in oh, yeah. Israel oh, yeah. um, that that it's moving the same way. Concerns in Italy that it's moving the same way. So um, there is a a very difficult job that I think people have to uh, to navigate through in all of this, which is how do we keep our values in a wartime economy and, and how do you make that make sense and how do you make sensible decisions? I'm just going to briefly thread this back into the news story that was next and then we'll, we'll kind of pick this up because we did see it, that um, MakerDAO have weighed in an emergency shutdown following the price drop. And of course, MakerDAO had this governance that was completely different to, to kind of most other uh, organizations of how you create currency. You know, they, they were the largest um, centralized application. There was stablecoin, but they were in a position where uh, they had die holders who were essentially uh, paying a cost at the end of a shutdown and, and leftover ETH being worth less in total than the die in US dollar terms. In other words, their model broke. They're kind of going through a similar thing to the rest of the economy. Is this is this something that you know? Is is the MakerDAO experiment coming to an end? And uh, and what can we learn from different governance models as as we think about this stuff? I'll make a small point. And I, I, I'm I'm I know Vinay is much more of an, um, into the ETH community than myself. As I said, we delisted Ethereum last year, um, and I think we're the only Western exchange that is Bitcoin and, and delisted Ethereum specifically because we had concerns. Um, around the technical maturity of Ethereum, um, not least because the developers of Ethereum said it wasn't good enough and they have to replace your Ethereum too. That's sort of evidence it's not mature enough. And also some of the sort of systemic issues, specifically things like MakerDAO. Um, we looked at implementing a lending offering um, for to offer our customers a coin floor. In the end, we've decided to pause it for now um, because we have concerns around systemic issues, not just in DeFi, but CeFi as well, centralized um, um, financed. Um, the difference with CeFi versus DeFi is that there are human elements who are able to make decisions when unintended scenarios happen. Um, 
uh, or they can pause because there's sometimes it's not you don't always zig you sometimes have to zag did, did you and see the, concern the um, with did you DeFi, see, did you see the sorry. flash loan craziness people bor- yes. borrowing enormous amounts of money inside of a smart contract you know bouncing around the prices to get bad information out of oracles then trading like you know discovering entirely new classes of financial attack it's but these were all. Super. These were all. But they, these were all saying said us the potential risks. The problem is um, dealing with loans. Isn't there is a, there is a sort of a necessary human um, element where you sort of pause and say, "Is something weird happening?" And which and that's hard to implement in code. This is what the flash loans. This is what the flash loans demonstrated. Right, the flash loans were an example of what happens when you take the humans out of the loop. If the if the attacker is a little clever, a little more clever than your smart contract, suddenly you have a whole bunch of new unex, you know, unanticipated behaviors, right? So, I mean, the I know the maker guys, right? You know, I've hung out with them at conferences. Uh, Stani, who runs Ave, the thing that's actually generating a lot of the flash loans, I see from time to time in London. He lives pretty close to me. Um, you know, like what we're seeing here is like sensible shutdowns, right? The system has come into a completely new domain. The stock market has to halt trading, and so does MakerDAO. That doesn't seem like it indicates that there's a fundamental, you know, greater risk profile with DeFi than there is in the centralized economy. Both sides have seen shutdowns. And you can make an argument about it shouldn't shut down or it shouldn't shut down or they've got a governance form, whatever it is. But at the point where, you know, you have to shut the, you know, centralized stock exchanges to maintain financial system stability, I don't think we should feel bad about Maker mm. also having it hit the brakes. Right? The fact that they managed to do it before everybody involved had lost all of their money and the entire thing was a nuclear crater, that is good. Right? They hit a problem, they did what the real world's financial systems do when they hit that kind of problem, they put the brakes on to protect people and now they're figuring out how to start it up again. So I don't see that as a sign of failure of the model. I see that as a sign of maturity. So I, I see that failure of the model from a philosophical point of view. It's a similar question that came up in the past, which led to the um, split between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, uh, the unstoppable code, and it actually is not yeah, unstoppable. Yeah, it's actually, it, it suggests that this system that we're saying is a decentralized platform, um, a public decentralized platform, isn't actually decentralized. We say decentralized finance but then we can take a centralized action to resolve a problem then it's no longer decentralized finance it's centralized finance call a spade a spade and then we understand what it is and we can deal with it appropriately so i think richard gendel brown the cto over r3 had this right quite some time ago which is centralization and decentralization is not a binary it's actually a spectrum of which you see points upon that spectrum that are valid um on one extreme you have bitcoin which is the absolute most decentralized you can get except for the miners which aren't very decentralized except for the exchanges which aren't very decentralized um and and then on the other end you've got the world of finance today but actually when you think about it that's not as centralized as it looks there's nearly 20,000 SWIFT member banks in the world, and they are somewhat decentralized and they have their own balance sheets. And so this this idea of centralization, I think, is not as binary as, as people make out. And secondly, 
you know, what's really changed here is um, the uh, how how assets are custodied. Uh, in other words, who, who's custodying the asset, who's holding the underlying asset, and, and how key management works, and the level of automation you get in that uh, from a centralized operator. In other words, uh, what role does the centralized operator play has changed somewhat. And I think the the original politicized sort of somewhat naive, somewhat um, you know, kind of world-changing optimism around uh, the world computer and unstoppable code may in fact be a, a great vision for 100 years' time. But for right now, the value might be somewhere else. And, and that's not wrong. And there's plenty we can learn from that, which I think is helpful. Um, but the MakerDAO guys have done the sensible thing. And it's it's not surprising that um, the, these things have been triggered and happening in, in the world of DeFi when you know, there's an article I saw uh, yesterday where uh, there are people in financial markets saying that part of the reason the swings have been so volatile in the past couple of days is not just the underlying risk in the markets, um, but it's also the fact that there is a much more automated trading. And these algorithms are trained to trade in markets that are the good times, not the bad times. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I feel like, you know, again, this gets to this kind of wartime economy kind of situation, right? Like, you know, we've seen 10 years of exponential craziness inside of the crypto markets. And we've gone through probably five political models in that period, starting from Bitcoin is going to displace the dollar, then Bitcoin will be remittances, then world computer, you know, then uh, the ICO insanity, then DeFi, right? And each one of these models spins up with the, you know, this is the thing which is going to become uh, a trillion dollar industry. This one, oh, what about this? Let's try so this becomes a trillion dollar industry. Okay, what about this one? So I feel like we're kind of slightly spinning wheels in the crypto market because we keep looking for mass adoption. We've got it, right? My own project, Materium, was explicitly there to try and breach into the real world so that it became possible to get actual physical assets, you know, houses, cars, you know, the Mona Lisa, Stradivarius violins, infamously, all this kind of stuff, actually listed on crypto platforms so that you could do legally binding exchange. And I was doing that, you know, like, a, you know, I set out on that course nearly three years ago with the explicit goal of trying to get the volatility out of these markets. Because if you have these platforms with trillions of dollars of real assets, which can be bought and sold without having to take your money out of the crypto ecosystem, the crypto ecosystem begins to peg to real value. Whereas right now, we're in a position where if you want to do anything real with crypto, you take your Bitcoin or your Ether, and then you turn it into dollars, and then you spend mm. the dollars. So we never see the place where crypto meets the real world because it's always bridged by exchanges. And you know, my kind of feeling is that what's going to come out of this is like, Enormous pressures on track and trace globally so we know where things originated so we can check for contamination. There's going to be an enormous tightening up of the pharma industry because if we get any kind of effective cure for this thing, the incentives towards producing fake medicine will be enormous. You know, I think we have inevitably, we're going to have to face that public health requires like NSA level access to data in the face of new infectious diseases. And I'm not happy about that, but you know, wearing my epidemiological hat, I don't see an alternative to that. So, you know, I think we're at a phase transition, really, where technology's role in society has been sort of lagging for about 30 years. We've never really gotten into the fundamental systems of the world. It's always been largely recreational and uh, efficiency gains. And I feel like this COVID crisis is going to flip us where 
20, 30 years of stalled technological change are suddenly going to be completely mainstreamed. And on the other side of it, we're going to be in a new world where it's work from home is standard, assets are tracked. You know, it's a, it's a phase transition. And, and I do feel like it's a snapping into reality of all these things which have been potential. So I, I, I completely agree that technology has um, a place here in the future. Um, in terms of these big scary problems let's let's just wind the clock back let's let's just go fully luddite let's forget about technology let's uh, sorry obi i I couldn't help myself (laughs) but i have an alternative vision for how it will help it's not about large centralized um um government or, or 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 similar authorities um putting in processes to resolve these issues um and sanctioning um large DLT projects. It's about each person individually using technology to protect themselves. So in a more in a more decentralized manner. So instead of trying to track and trace the quality of of goods and that come to your door, people learning how to cook their food or 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 um or reduce the risk of it once it comes through, assuming it comes in in a form where it's it's full of viruses and so on, but then um, irradiating or whatever it may be but with technology so that they don't have to worry about relying on third parties. That is the decentralized approach. And this comes to this, I hear this a lot about this spectrum between centralized and decentralized. It is a spectrum, um, but it's it's like a bell curve in terms of, so although you can be anywhere on that curve, it's very, very difficult to be somewhere in the middle. There is, There are sort of forces pushing you one way or another. And if you start in one direction, then you will accelerate towards um, being fully centralized or you accelerate towards being decentralized. The philosophy of people in the Bitcoin space is they want to resist anything that takes them towards a centralized space and accelerate towards decentralization, although it's not fully decentralized. I got to tell you here, right? Bitcoin, just the entire crypto space as it stands is completely irrelevant compared to the forces which are in play now. Like it looks big to us because we're inside of it. But, you know, what did we see? A 7% drop in the DAO? 10, you said nearly 10%? How much, really 10, how yeah. much value was destroyed in that 10% drop? I don't know off the top of my hands, but I'm betting you it's a lot. But I think there's a bigger point here, guys, which is uh, that those macro moves are absolutely about um, moving to a wartime economy. I think that's the key point. And um, wartime, you get radar, you get Turing machines. So what will those things be and, and how will they reimagine the biggest problem we have right now, which is a, a burgeoning financial crisis, which we've been tipped into with very few policy bullets left. And listen, I've got to do an ad read. So this is the weirdest segue to an ad read I've ever done. Um, but um, this episode is brought to you by R3, um, developed by R3, Corda's known for its enterprise grace, privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because it was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size or industry. Uh, A free trial of Corda Enterprise is available at r3.com. If you have nothing else going on, please do head on over and check that out. Alrighty. Um, last story I'm going to cover off this week is about uh, Ledger Insights. And this is ING investing in enterprise blockchain securities lending platform, HQLAX. Now, um, shout out to those guys. Um, it is R3's uh, sort of uh, partner, uh, R3 Lab, that have uh, put together HQLAX with, with a number of banks. Uh, I think the um, 
the idea of swapping high quality liquid assets when financial markets are in this place is, is, is not a bad idea at all. Um, and for a long time, financial markets have had this concept of collateral at multiple venues. Um, this is, OB, though, something that you're quite used to seeing in the world of financial markets. Why do people need to be able to move collateral between different trading venues uh, quite quickly? What advantage can it give them? I mean, it's, it's why um, clearing houses and so on exists, because um, you want to increase liquidity, increase the speed that you can trade. I mean, um, you can take advantage of gaps in price between two different um, trading venues. Um, and that's a standard hedging um, or trading strategy or an arbitrage trading strategy. If those gaps last for a shorter period than it takes you to move capital between the two, you may not be able to take advantage of that or you need larger balances on, on these different platforms. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? From a capital efficiency standpoint, if if I have to put collateral in five places, um, I, then I have five times the capital outlay. If I only have to put them in one, I have one times the capital outlay and I move it around wherever I'm, I'm trading at that given point. Or you borrow the collateral from someone else so that they're putting it on, on your behalf. One way or another, have as little exposure as possible um, to, to the um, counterparty risk on the multiple exchanges. And also, you want to also have as little risk or exposure as possible to the time delays between transferring to these. It tends to lead to centralization, funnily enough in things like clearing houses and so on. And so HQLAX, um, the, the spiel says they enable market participants to redistribute their collateral by exchanging the ownership of tokenized securities across quarter, um, which no longer requires the underlying securities to move across different users, removing um, uh, kind of barriers to collateral fluidity, which allows users to manage their liquidity easier, faster, and more efficiently. And when there's a liquidity crunch, this stuff could suddenly seem a lot more important than it did. And I'm guessing things like Turing machines and radar suddenly got very important when there was a war effort too. So I uh, wish these guys well. Listen, a bunch of stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, we didn't have time to cover that the Belgian government is going to sell $125,000 of seized Bitcoins. Um, we didn't have time to cover that Ledger Insights notes uh, uh, Japan's financial regulator has initiated uh, a global blockchain governance council. Um, we didn't have time to cover that UK trade negotiators are eyeing blockchain provisions in coming uh, US trade talks, although we'll see if they happen. And we also didn't have time to cover India's Supreme Court striking down an RBI ban against crypto and South Korea passing one of the first comprehensive cryptocurrency laws. So big week in crypto. So it's time for Twitter of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Malcolm Miller. Malcolm says, uh, now uh, NBA players promote DAO-based clothing brands. Um, so this is uh, sort of uh, the, yo, shirts go crazy, limited edition, limited supply. Um, so this is this is how down with the kids I am, as you can clearly tell. This is me reading out a basketball player's tweet. Um <laughs> What do we think? This this celebrity endorsement thing going to go away, get more? We've seen a few people in the NBA space start to, to do this sort of stuff. And, and is it just a, a giant distraction from the good times that uh, that we should long since forget? Or do you think actually there's something to be said for uh, people people trying to do this stuff? Oh, I mean, you know, this gets directly into the whole kind of collectibles, tokenization, you know, all of this sort of stuff. I mean, my feeling on this is that the merger between 
private equity, celebrity, and brands is you know like the, the main theme that we're going to see in the next 10 or 20 years, right? If you think about modern pop music, like think of Taylor Swift, right? Or, or Kanye West or Beats by Dre. You know, the, these things are like nucleation points for a financial phenomena, but the music is like 1% of the revenue of these artists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, how, how do you invest in a distressed music artist um, and, Actually, and kind of go through... Oh man, I go through a turnaround. I heard an amazing story about a producer whose speciality is has beans, and I can't tell you the name, but he basically picks up artists that haven't done anything interesting in about fifteen years. You know, hires a bunch of people to sort out their finances. You know, gets rid of any you know old uh, hangers on that are kind of screwing them and you know draining their energy, and just stands them up the production machinery around them, and then they go out and they knock out a few albums, and you know the returns are amazing on that portfolio i can only imagine and speaking of private equity it's do you think that private equity or big crypto exchanges or people with lots of cash sitting on the sidelines might be looking at banking licenses or banks at the moment we we sort we've sort of played with this question for a little while um and we we we've seen a little bit of it out of zook but we uh, and we saw uh caitlin um long, long in delaware has uh done something similar recently uh we've seen a few depositories do you think this the genie's out of the bottle and we're going to see more licenses getting bought uh as as banks that are quite small um start to become distressed in the coming years and months i think that could be an interesting area yes um i i think um we are seeing certain exchanges look at um partnerships or or acquisition strategies related to um, financial institutions. Ooh. It's also becoming easier to be regulated as a cryptocurrency exchange in the West. Um, so that's a first step towards wanting to, we're, we're supposed to be the crypto banks. So having the other side sorted is, is, is sort of a logical next step. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. And God, that flew by. Um, this, uh, just to remind you, listeners, uh, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS. And we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and help people with the digital shift. And my goodness, there is one heck of a digital shift going on right now. So if you want to speak to us, do reach out to me directly at simon at 11fs.com. I'd be happy to have a chat about whatever it is you're thinking about inside your organization. Um, where can people find out more about you, Vinny? Um, so uh, the company is Materium, so M-A-T-T-E-R-E-U-M.com. Uh, and if you go to materium.com slash CSR, uh, you can see a whole bunch of pandemic flu resources that we're updating for COVID. Uh, a couple of members of the team happened to have prior infectious disease experience, and we're just going through updating a lot of that old work kind of in our spare time uh, as a CSR effort. Thank you so much. And what about yourself, Obi? Yeah, so you can see my sort of uh, musings on Twitter mainly at um, Obi on Twitter, OBI, twitter.com slash Obi. Uh, I was very early into Twitter. Uh Um, And, or you can go to um, CoinFloor. So CoinFloor, C-O-I-N-F-L-O-O-R.co.uk. And you can buy Bitcoin uh, without the coin BS, as we like to say. 
I like it. Alrighty. Uh, just re- time to thank our production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra, Olivia, and of course Alex, our superstar editor, who's having a lot more fun uh, now things have gone remote. So Alex, good luck with this one, my friend. Uh, I hope you managed to get it uh, all in and on time. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider in a couple of weeks' time. Bye for now.